This is the second part on the story of the Garden of Eden. The last episode was all background. It was about the geography and the plants and the animals that might have been in the Garden of Eden. It was really setting the stage for this part of the story, where an uninvited guest turns out to be the worst guest in history. This is Memories of Eden, Part 2. It was an eventful five years. It started at Ticonderoga in 1775, and then there was the march through Maine to attack Quebec. He'd become a general after that, and then fought a naval battle on Lake Champlain. He drove the British from Danbury, Connecticut, and then he became a major general. He was popular with his troops. He fought at the Battle of Saratoga, something later considered a turning point in the war. George Washington once called him the bravest of the brave. And it would be nice if this was the end of the story, because then everything would be different. But Saratoga was a turning point for Benedict Arnold, too. He was wounded in the battle, and that took him from frontline commander to being in charge of the city of Philadelphia. It was there that he socialized with loyalist families, and it was there he was brought up on charges in court of illegal behavior. So, for any number of reasons, in the summer of 1779, Benedict Arnold changed sides. In May, he sent secret messages to the British and ended up exchanging letters with British General Henry Clinton. He told him about troop movements and other matters for money. He ended up informing them of American plans to invade Canada. And then his grand plan. He gained command of West Point, and for 20,000 pounds, he agreed to betray it to the British. On September 21, 1780, there was a secret meeting between Benedict Arnold and the go-between, John Andre, who was going to take the details of West Point's defenses to General Clinton. Andre was determined to get to British lines, and so he disguised himself as a civilian and tucked the plans into his boot. He almost made it. He was within sight of British lines when he was stopped by three American militiamen. They searched him. They found the papers in his boots. And Arnold just escaped on a ship, while Andre was hung as a spy. What's so significant about Benedict Arnold's story is how important he was to the Patriot Army before he switched sides. You have to wonder, before he defected, how did he decide? Was it a process? Was it an epiphany? Did he wake up one day and say, you know what, today's the day. Today's the day I betray everyone. I don't think Eve started her day in the Garden of Eden planning to destroy paradise. If I had to guess, Eve was expecting a normal day. She was expecting to go about her routines, pet the animals, drink some water, maybe go for a swim. She was expecting things to be like they had been. The first two chapters of Genesis are all about creation. And by the end of them, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and God puts them in charge of the earth. He really leaves them with three instructions. He tells them to have lots of kids. He tells them to subdue the planet, meaning maybe they should grow food and build things. And then there's the comment that gets all the attention. Because the third thing he tells them is that they can eat from any tree in the garden except for one. 
And if they eat from that one tree, they're going to die. It's not many rules, but I think people can get hung up on that third one. It can seem a little strange for there to be a deadly tree in a perfect garden. I was trying to think about what this would be like, and I thought of going to a farmer's market. And you meet a guy at the gate, and he's handing out maps or something, telling you what they're selling. And he says that they're all nice people inside, that there's great food. Just watch out for the one booth with the poisoned apples. How excited would you be about that? Wouldn't you wonder why they let that guy into the farmer's market? The reason this tree is in the Garden of Eden is all about freedom of choice. In the last episode, I talked about the story that Isaiah and Ezekiel tell about Lucifer, the angel who rebelled in heaven and was banished to the earth. This one tree, this is Lucifer's access to Adam and Eve. It's, it's like Lucifer's embassy in the Garden of Eden. If Adam and Eve don't like the Garden of Eden, that tree is there out. Eating the fruit is how they switch sides, how they defect. The other reason people get hung up by the command is because that thing about dying sounds like a threat. And you got to be careful here because it's really more of a consequence. God gave Adam and Eve life, and so they're really only alive if they're with God. It's like unplugging a lamp and then wondering why the light goes out. That's it. Those are all the instructions Genesis mentions. And maybe that's how God leaves it. But there is this one comment in Genesis 2 that sounds kind of ominous. When Adam was first put in the Garden of Eden, he was to work it and keep it. And this could be being a keeper like a caretaker or a zookeeper. But it could also be a hint. Because that verb, to keep, means a bunch of things, including to guard. And that implies that there was something to guard against. There was something he had to watch out for. Maybe there was more than just a tree. Now, I'm not going to bury the lead any deeper here. You've probably heard this story, but even if you haven't, if you've ever heard a story where someone was told not to do something at the beginning of it, then you know how this one ends. They go and do it. We don't know how long it took. One scholar I was reading seems to think that Eve practically sprinted over to the tree the moment God left the garden. But I'd guess it took a little while. Not years, not months, but maybe weeks. Put yourself in Eve's shoes for a minute. Everything is new to her in the Garden of Eden. There's a lot to explore, a lot to see, a lot to learn, right? You've got the animals, the plants, you've got the sights. For a while, I would think it was easy to ignore that one tree you weren't supposed to go over by. But then, as the weeks passed, as you've looked at everything else, that one thing you hadn't gone to look closely at, it would start to get kind of hard to ignore. This curiosity that Eve's feeling about something she can't explore, I can relate to this a little bit. A few years ago, I moved into a house in the country that was practically stuck in time. I mean, it still had a rotary phone on the wall. There was this ancient dishwasher and an electric stove with the really thick coils that you got back in the day. If you went down into the basement, there was an old floor safe. It had the brass dials about two feet on a side, had the big handle, the, the huge hinges, and it was locked. Now I checked around and no one seemed to have the combination. 
So there was this safe that was locked in my basement and I had no idea what was inside it. I remember going down to it right after we moved in and putting my ear up against it and spinning the dial and listening for the clicks that you're supposed to be able to hear, but I got nothing. I even tried a stethoscope, but that just made it louder and still completely uncrackable by someone like me. If you look up safes like this online, old safes in a basement, they're almost universally empty. And that makes sense, right? You'd assume people took their valuables out before they left. But if you're that person, it really doesn't matter. Not knowing is almost like ignoring an itch. And so I can put myself in Eve's shoes a little bit. I can imagine wanting to know what's so special about that one tree. You know, you think about taking paths through the garden that always take you by the tree somehow. So you can see it from the distance. You're not, you're not getting close, but you're always getting another view of it. Now, we don't have a lot to go on. The record in Genesis is very short. This whole podcast is based on 300 to 400 words in the English Standard Version of Genesis and a handful of texts from other places in the Bible. There's not a lot of detail to go on. So you have to imagine it a little bit. And I imagine that this one tree is standing by itself. You can kind of think of a grassy field or maybe a clearing in the woods. And you can think of Eve coming to the edge of the clearing and taking a good look at the tree from a distance. And then you can think of her coming closer and a little closer. Just to look at it, right? It's fine to look. Just don't eat. And when she gets close enough, there's this voice. Genesis uses one line to introduce a main character here. It says, quote, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. There are a lot of definitions for crafty. In the Bible, it's actually usually a positive thing. It means clever or prudent. But in English, it means cunning. You can think of someone manipulative. And that's all we get. That's all the Bible says about the snake. I wanted to find out more. I wanted to picture this scene the way it might have happened. So I started looking up information on snakes. Now, we know a lot about snakes today. We know about cobras and vipers and pythons. The largest snake today is the giant anaconda. It's sometimes called the green anaconda. And it can get a little over 30 feet long though it's usually more like 16 feet long. That's snakes today. But we also know something about ancient snakes. In the last episode, I talked about fossils of large animals, and we found large snake fossils too. In 2004, they excavated some fossils from a coal mine in Carajon, Colombia. And it doesn't sound very scientific, but they called this snake a titanoboa because it averaged 42 feet long, and might have weighed over 2,000 pounds. They actually made a sculpture, you can find online, a sculpture of it for the Smithsonian Museum in 2012, so people could get an idea of what this snake, a snake that might have been two and a half times longer on average than a giant anaconda, what this snake might have been like. Now, I'm not saying that this is the snake from the Garden of Eden, but it gives us some idea of what a snake could have been. And that's just paleontology. If you go around the world and start looking up ancient stories from different cultures, 
you get all kinds of details about snakes. In Central America, there's images the Olmec made of a rattlesnake that wore feathers or wings on the back of its head. The Mayans, and I'm sorry if I say some of these names wrong, had a snake god called Kukulkan. The Aztecs had a snake god named Quetzalcoatl, and it was named after the Quetzal bird because it had this plume or crest of bright green and red feathers up by its head. You can actually see drawings of it in a manuscript made by a Spanish friar around 1550. If you go from there, those stories in Central America, up into what is today the United States, you also get descriptions from Native American tribes that talk about a snake that had horns on its head or the head and antlers of a deer and wings on its back. They called this snake the horned serpent or the tie snake and they referred to it as a chaotic force. One author says that it was considered the strongest power of the lower world and described it as strangely beautiful and dreadfully alluring. He says, quote, It was armored with crystalline scales that shined iridescently, its forehead crowned with an extraordinarily bright crystal. And this isn't the only story. James Mooney, an American ethnographer with the Smithsonian in the late 1800s and early 1900s, he wrote stories about the Cherokee, a tribe from the Appalachian Mountains, and they had a story of a great serpent called the Uctena. He says, quote, Those who know say that the Uctena is a great snake, as large around as a tree trunk, with horns on its head, and a bright, blazing crest like a diamond upon its forehead, and scales glittering like sparks of fire. To me, those are amazing descriptions. Think of a snake with feathers or glittering scales. Imagine a diamond or a crystal that seems to glow from its forehead. I'll admit, this sounds far-fetched. But then if you keep reading, you end up in India and reading Hindu stories about Nagas, Sanskrit for snake. And they describe semi-divine snakes that carry precious jewels in their heads. These are stories told on the opposite sides of the planet. From there, you can go look at stories of dragons. Now, before this sounds like a conspiracy, the word dragon literally means huge serpent. So it kind of fits if you're looking for details. Some of the earliest stories we have of dragons go as far back as the Hittites in 1500 BC. In Babylon, they made images of an animal with legs, wings, and a scaly body. In Greek mythology, and this one has great parallels, in Greek mythology, there's a dragon named Ladon who guarded a tree in a special garden. The Chinese have dragon stories too. Their dragons are usually benevolent, even though they're made of scales, have antlers, have ears like an ox, talons on their feet, and the eyes of a demon. Before I get letters about this, I want to be clear. I'm not saying these stories are true. I'm just telling you other stories people have told about snakes. People back then could make up stories just as well as people can today, so most of them are likely fiction or mostly fiction. But you have to wonder why snake stories come up so often. You can get descriptions of dragons from the Americas, from Australia, China, Japan. There are stories in Scandinavia. But if Genesis is history, it's a common origin. They're all remembering a little bit of the same thing. And I'm not saying these stories are right. 
But if the descriptions are even sort of accurate, even a little bit right, the snake Eve might have seen sounds mesmerizing. Think of that titanoboa they found in the coal mine in Colombia and add horns or bright red and green feathers like a lion's mane. Budgies, a type of parakeet, have feathers that fluoresce. They absorb high-energy UV and re-emit them at longer wavelengths. It's the same thing that makes your highlighter ink look so bright on a page. It makes it seem like more light is reflecting off of the bird than the light that originally hit it. So it almost seems to glow. So maybe the feathers on the snake are kind of like that. And then think of the rest of the body. One quote said that it looked iridescent. An iridescence is that rainbow effect you get from an oil slick or a soap bubble or fish scales. It's caused by a thin layer on the surface of something, letting the light interfere with itself. So things seem like they're a different color from a different angle. And you can imagine this snake moving and maybe glittering or shimmering. Maybe where the Cherokee get their description that it looked like sparks of fire. You've got those dragon stories where the snake maybe had legs and wings, but think about its head. If it was like a boa constrictor, it maybe had the long and triangular head. And then in the middle, maybe that gem or crystal that seemed to glow. Maybe something like the glow from a firefly. The Chinese talk about dragons having eyes of a demon. And you can imagine the eyes gleaming a little bit back up under the shadows of the tree. This would terrify me. But I'd also be a little bit like the deer in the headlights. Strangely beautiful and dreadfully alluring. It's that good description. It's something that kind of draws you in. I wouldn't want to get close, but I'd want to see it. I'd want to watch it. And that's today. That's with me knowing the danger from snakes, knowing what snakes can do. Eve had none of that. It's hard to sense how safe the world was for her. Martin Luther talks about that in his commentary. He's describing Eve coming up to the tree and talking to the snake. And he says, Eve, quote, talks with the serpent without any fear whatever, and as we should do with an innocent little bird or a favorite little dog. Nor have I any doubt that the serpent was an exquisitely beautiful creature. Think of that mesmerizing and terrifying snake. But then think that the feeling you get is the feeling of a puppy or a duckling. When he was in heaven, Lucifer was described as perfect in wisdom. He knew what would get Eve's attention. He knew what would draw her in. Genesis doesn't say that the snake was in the tree. It's a pretty common idea. If you do an image search of the Garden of Eden, you'll see a lot of paintings that show a snake coiled or reaching down from the tree. But Genesis doesn't say it was necessarily that way. You can also imagine the snake on the ground, maybe near the tree. That's the image you get on a Babylonian clay cylinder, where you see a snake raising up and whispering in Eve's ear as she's under this palm tree. Either way, either in the tree or on the ground, as Eve gets close, the snake asks a question. It says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In the original language, this is an ambiguous question. 
The scholars debate whether the snake was saying, are there any trees God told you not to eat from? Or God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? You can get either translation from the original. And that was probably the goal. Lucifer wanted Eve to wonder. Wanted to wonder if maybe God wasn't making a fair demand. Eve comes back. She tells the snake that they can eat fruit of any tree in the garden. But then she adds, quote, But God said, You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There are a few problems with this part. First off, Eve refers to the tree as the tree in the middle of the garden, not as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how it's been referred to before. She's starting to think of it like it's a regular tree, like it's like all the others. And then Eve changes God's rule. God said they couldn't eat from the tree. Eve says they can't touch it. Something that we have no record of God commanding. But the biggest issue in what she says is at the ending. Because God said, you shall surely die. And Eve said, lest you die. That wasn't the rule. God said you would die. Eve is changing it to more of a might die. Maybe the question got to her. Maybe Eve is beginning to waver. Maybe she's starting to think the consequences aren't certain. And it's fair to say we might not have the whole conversation here. Genesis might be really giving us the the cliff notes of what happened in the Garden of Eden. But maybe this wavering that Eve was doing, maybe this was the foothold that Lucifer was looking for. Maybe that's what he was waiting for, because the next thing is really bold. He says she won't die. He tells her that God knows that if she eats this fruit, her eyes will be opened and she'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. In the last episode, I talked about the theory that Lucifer slandered God to the other angels while he was still in heaven. And you can see how this is kind of likely, because this is what he's doing to Eve. He's telling Eve that God is selfish, that he's keeping the fruit for himself, keeping her ignorant, keeping her blind. Lucifer is trying to sell Eve on the same thing he wanted. He wanted God's throne, God's position, God's power. And he's telling Eve she can be like God if she just eats this fruit. And then he's taunting her because he's telling her that she's too blind to see it. And you can imagine her standing there and wondering, why did God say we couldn't have it? This is the turning point in the story. There's this moment, this sentence in Genesis where Eve looks at the tree. And you can imagine Eve taking a good, careful look. Now, we don't know what the fruit was, but there are a lot of options. I mentioned the old Babylonian cylinder with the palm tree that had dates on it, but you also sometimes hear about it being an apple. And this comes from a couple of places. When Jerome translated the generic Hebrew term for fruit into the Latin Bible, he changed the word to apple because he was making a bit of a pun. The word in Latin for apple is the same as the Latin word for evil. So it was a little bit of a joke. You can also get the idea it was an apple from Greek mythology. I talked about that dragon guarding a tree in a special garden. Well, it was a tree of golden apples. 
But that doesn't really narrow things down as much as you might think, because the apples they're talking about aren't what we think of today. They used to use the word apple to refer to fruit in general. Dates were finger apples, bananas were apples of paradise, cucumbers and potatoes were sometimes called earth apples. So really, this forbidden fruit could be anything. On the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo painted it as a fig tree. Other people suggest pomegranates or grapes or apricots. The Chinese have a symbol that shows that they might think of it as a mulberry tree. There's no real support for any of these options because we don't know what the forbidden fruit was. But you can imagine that whatever it was, Eve takes a good, long, close look at it. She can still walk away, and it's only a close call. And you wonder, in that moment, what's going through Eve's mind? Is she still just curious? Or has it now turned into something else? Maybe now she's beginning to wonder about God. Maybe she's beginning to wonder if he really is just trying to keep it for himself, trying to keep her ignorant, trying to keep her down. Maybe like the snake says, she's wondering if she really is blind to what he's doing. The sentence in Genesis says that she noticed that the fruit looked nice, that it was good for food, and that it might make her wise. This today is what we call rationalizing. Now, we all rationalize. We rationalize not getting up, not exercising, not eating right. But what Eve's doing is high-stakes rationalizing. She's willing to risk death on a hunch that God is lying to her. I was trying to think about what this would be like. And what came to mind is those stories you get of unexploded bombs that they still sometimes find in Germany or the UK. They actually, just in 2016, found bombs in both London and in Augsburg, Germany. And the Augsburg, Germany bomb was a 1.8 ton explosive. They had to evacuate 54,000 people so they could defuse it. So I think about something like that, where someone finds a bomb and they close off the area, they warn people, they cordon things off, but you want to see it. So you sneak in, you go into that cellar or that barn that no one's been going into. That's Eve's situation at the tree. She knows it's dangerous, but she was too curious. She had to go see it. Now, to take the analogy a little farther, imagine that you're looking at the bomb and you start doing what Eve's doing. You start rationalizing. You start thinking, well, it hasn't gone off so far. Maybe this whole unexploded bomb thing is a scare tactic. That's the kind of moment Eve is having right now. She's rationalizing that everything will be okay. And then there's the final piece. Because maybe, as you're standing right next to the bomb in the cellar, you look, and nestled in next to it, there's this little nest of bunnies. And now it really seems safe. And I wonder if that's kind of what happens to Eve. Because with all the rationalizing that's going on in her head, she can see that the snake in front of her is fine. And it can talk. Now, I've glossed over it so far, but Eve is talking to an animal. We think of it as Lucifer speaking through the snake, but to Eve, it was just an animal. We don't know if other animals in the Garden of Eden talked. Genesis doesn't say they do. 
There's no reason to think they did. So this was probably weird. One commentary even suggested that the snake probably told Eve that the fruit is what made it able to speak and able to reason with her. And that would be good evidence that the fruit could make you wise, wouldn't it? And you can imagine her thinking, if it did that for the snake, think what it can do for me. And maybe that's what tipped the scales for Eve. The way the story is written in Genesis, you can tell how things are beginning to go. Eve is clearly wavering. She's rationalizing. Because in that one sentence, where Eve sees that the fruit is good for food, that it's beautiful, that it can make her wise, it says nothing about it being a poison. It says nothing about a chance of death. She's only seeing the upside now. And, truth be told, maybe she wasn't considering death anymore. Maybe she'd already decided that God was lying to her, and everything would be fine. So Eve eats it. This is the crossing the Rubicon moment. And Genesis doesn't say, but I wonder if after eating, she felt different at all. There's not a lot of detail to go on. Did the fruit taste good? Did she take one bite? Was it the whole fruit? Was it one of those fruits that looks amazing but tastes awful? Was it like durian that smells so bad they ban it on public transportation in some places? Genesis doesn't answer any of these questions. But what we do know is that one moment she's eating it, and in the next, she's all in. Because now she's the messenger, and she's taking some of the fruit to Adam. And I wonder what the motive was here. There are lots of ideas. It could be all good motives. Maybe the fruit tasted fantastic. Maybe Eve felt great after eating it. Maybe she wanted to be generous and, unlike God, share some with Adam. But then there are the bad motives. Maybe she knew she had done something wrong. And if she was going to be in trouble, maybe she didn't want to be in trouble alone. That's guesswork, but either way, in the next moment, Eve takes some of the fruit to Adam. Now I'm going to pause for a second here, because we have to take a mental shift. We have to step from Eve's shoes over into Adam's shoes, get into Adam's head. Because this whole story is different from Adam's perspective. There's debate about it, but this whole time, Adam was probably off somewhere else in the garden. And as best we can tell, he was having a fairly normal day. And then you can imagine him looking up. And you can imagine him seeing Eve come from a distance. And you can imagine him noticing that piece of fruit in her hand. And I wonder if even at a distance, Adam recognized the fruit. Think about it. Adam would have been curious too. Adam would have done the same things, looking at that tree from a distance, seeing that fruit from a distance. And if this was the only dangerous thing in the garden, it seems like that would be an image that's stuck in your mind. And so I wonder if before Eve got there, Adam already knew what she was carrying. And maybe he had some idea of what was going on. There is no record of the conversation between Adam and Eve. Maybe Eve repeated everything the snake told her. But maybe Adam was tempted by something else. Maybe Adam was afraid of losing Eve. 
Remember, she was literally a part of him. She was made from one of his ribs. They were two halves of the same thing. They'd never had an argument. They were perfect partners for one another. So for Adam, maybe this temptation is less about what he might gain and more about what he might lose. But if you think about that, the root of the temptation was the same thing. It was a temptation to not trust God. Eve was tempted to think that God was selfish, that he was going to keep something good away from her. Adam was tempted to think that God was unkind, that he would take something good away. And I wonder if he also started to think about what would happen to Eve. If he also started to question what God would do to her. We don't know what Adam thought. But the Bible does say he wasn't fooled. It says that Eve was deceived, but Adam wasn't. Adam wasn't thinking maybe it won't come true. Adam knew what would happen if he ate the fruit. But either because Eve convinced him, or because of his own fears, or because he didn't want to be separated from her, or because he didn't trust God to solve the problem, Adam ate it too. For all the disdain Eve gets through history for eating fruit, I think you could make a really strong argument that what Adam did was worse. Eve could say she'd been tricked. Adam decided. This whole thing is a tragedy. The whole time you know the end of the story, but you still wish it could end differently. You still wish they could make a better choice. And that makes you wonder why the tree was allowed in the garden in the first place. The simple answer, and it's totally true, is all about that freedom of choice thing I mentioned earlier. But there's also another thing to think about, something that's not just about Adam and Eve. In heaven, Lucifer challenged God's government and was banished. But the challenge was still out there. Angels or other created beings might be wondering if Lucifer was right, if his government really would have been better. So while this story is about free choice for Adam and Eve, it was also God giving Lucifer a chance to prove his system was better. And it had to be a fair contest. Think of the alternatives. There's option one, that God could destroy Lucifer. This is the Joseph Stalin solution. Destroy anyone who disagrees. But then the angels would wonder if God's government really was good. They might serve God out of fear, but they wouldn't love him. Option two, God could prevent Adam and Eve from eating from the tree. Remember, I said the tree was kind of like Lucifer's embassy. So this would be the Berlin Wall tactic. Before the Berlin Wall went up, around 3.5 million people, almost 20% of East Germany's population had already defected. A lot of them were technical experts, and so West Berlin was almost like a drain in a tub. So on the night of August 12, 1961, the East German government plugged the drain. First, they built a temporary wall with blocks and barbed wire, and eventually it came to extend over 100 miles and include concrete slabs and watchtowers and minefields and guns. That was one option. God could just plug the leak. But the wall turned East Germany and East Berlin into a prison. It wasn't a free place anymore. If God did that in the Garden of Eden, everyone would know that he was cheating to win. Lucifer's system would automatically look better. Then there's option three. God could 
rig the vote. This is the Cuba strategy. In Cuba, the Castro set things up so there was only one choice for each office, and campaigning was forbidden. Unsurprisingly, both Castro brothers got 99% in their elections. During the Cold War, the USSR did even better. The Communist Party and the Soviet Union got 100% in every legislative election until 1984. God could have done this. He could have rigged the vote. He didn't have to give Lucifer a spot on a nice tree or enjoyable fruit to sell. He could have put him in the bottom of a dark cave and tried to get Eve to eat lumps of dirt. But that's just a subtle version of the Berlin Wall system. None of these alternatives was good. God had to give a fair shot, or the universe would question the outcome. If Adam and Eve, angels, or anyone else was going to serve God, God wanted them to do it voluntarily. So God leveled the field, let Lucifer make his case. He let Adam and Eve decide. Now, to be clear, that's not to say that God didn't care. God wanted Adam and Eve to live. The tree of life was available. They were allowed to eat from it. Babylonians and other people in the ancient world believed the gods wanted humans to be mortal. But in this story, God wanted them to live, but allowed them to choose. That tree was how Adam and Eve showed whether they followed God or Lucifer. And as a test, eating fruit from a tree seems trivial, but it was all part of making things fair. It was a good test precisely because it was easy. Adam and Eve couldn't say that the test was too challenging. They couldn't say they were starving. There was lots of food in the Garden of Eden. So the only explanation for why they ate the fruit was because they wanted to. You could say that Lucifer cheated in the election when he lied to Eve. But then came Adam, and Adam decided. If nothing else, that sealed it. One way or another, they both doubted God, they both tried to get wisdom on their own, and they effectively chose Lucifer's side. The first humans defected. Right after Adam and Eve both eat the fruit, in fairness, Genesis does say that their eyes were opened, because the first thing they notice is that they're naked, and the first thing they do is try to cover it up. This part of the story is odd. Genesis says Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to make loincloths for themselves. And that's a little hard to imagine. It's true, we still get our clothes from plants today, we get linen from flax, and we get cotton from cotton. But it's hard to imagine sewing a leaf to another leaf. I did some digging into botany, and as far as it goes, fig leaves are not the worst choice for clothes. They're pretty big, around 10 inches long and 10 inches wide, and they're pretty thick, so they might sew okay. But at the same time, they don't make ideal clothing. They're rough on one side and hairy on the other, and they don't seem like they'd be very comfortable. But Adam and Eve probably didn't pick them because they sewed well. And they probably didn't pick them because they were comfortable. Comfort wasn't the goal. The goal was to hide. It was camouflage. Because they knew at some point, God was going to come back to the garden. And that makes this day, morning, afternoon, whatever was left, one of the longest days in history. They had broken the rule, and they knew what was going to happen when God came. And this wait, and the inevitability of how the day is going to end, it makes me think a little bit of times when you go swimming. 
and you get up to dive into cold water for the first time and you jump off and there's that moment when you're in the air and you're looking at the water coming towards you and you know you're going to be cold and you're going to be wet and you know it's too late to do anything about it. It's too late to change your mind. That's what this whole afternoon was for them. They're watching the sun move across the sky and they're waiting. Remember how the day started. It was a normal day in paradise. Everything was nice. You've got to think at this point, they're not enjoying paradise at all. I imagine them sitting quietly, each in their own thoughts, not really looking at each other. I wonder what was going through their minds as they sat there. Eve is probably going back over every word of the conversation she had with the snake, reliving it over and over. Maybe thinking that Adam wouldn't be in this situation if she'd stayed away. She's not thinking everything will be okay anymore. And then there's Adam. Remember, Adam was supposed to keep to guard the garden, and he'd essentially sold out. This is where we come back to that thought of people in history whose names are synonymous with traitor. This is the Benedict Arnolds, the Vidkun Quislings in Norway. This is the Kim Philbys in the UK. How would things have been different if Benedict Arnold had known that he would be the poster child for traitor. And Adam betrayed the whole earth. He betrayed everyone who would ever live on it. And he betrayed God. So his name is at the very top of that list. Adam and Eve are thinking their own thoughts, but they're, they're having the same feelings. They're having terror. They're having the first adrenaline rush. They've got the clammy hands and the dry mouth. This is the first time there was a fight-or-flight response. They'd eaten the fruit because they doubted God, and now they're imagining the worst about him. They're imagining how they'll be executed when he gets there. The shadows get longer. The afternoon ends. The sun begins to set. And then they hear the sound of someone else in the garden. Lucifer lost against God in heaven, but his plan B worked on Adam and Eve on earth. Genesis 3 is a tragedy, but it isn't over. In the next episode, when Adam and Eve meet God, they discover that Lucifer wasn't the only one with a backup plan. In the meantime, if you have a question about something from this episode, WiderBible.com has references, links, and show notes with extra information, tangents, and details that didn't fit into the podcast. The website also has a link for asking questions and a place to subscribe, so you can be the first to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schall. Thanks for listening.